All right, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 5. I was waiting for them to hand out the handouts. Something happened with the printer. It wasn't me, but some of the handouts are bad on the back. If you didn't get one of those, don't worry about it. If you did, sorry about that. I just let them keep printing and it worked itself out, but it was giving some problems with the paper, and so kind of jumbled up on the back. But maybe we won't even get to those. I don't know. All right, last week we left off in Romans chapter 4 talking about um, Abraham's faith. Okay, quick overview of Romans. Romans chapter 1, 1 through about verse 17, Paul says he can't wait to get to Rome to preach the gospel to these folks because the gospel is the power of God which leads to salvation and is for everybody, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans 1, 18 through 32, Paul says, Gentiles have sinned. You remember, God revealed himself in nature to the Gentiles. They went after idolatry, sexual perversion, and all manners of works of the flesh. Romans 1, Gentiles have sinned. Romans 2, Jews aren't any better. Romans 2 and verse 1, Jews, you're an inexcusable old man. You command other people to do things. You don't follow through yourself. The Jews had the law, and while they did have a spiritual advantage with the law, they weren't any better. Romans chapter 2, Jews have sinned. Romans 3, what's the next thing? All of sin. All of sin. And come short of the glory of God. But we're saved and redeemed, Paul says, not by works of the law of Moses, but through faith in Christ Jesus according to his redemption, which he purchased for us. And then Romans chapter 4, Paul says, this isn't anything new. God has always been saving people by faith. Biblical faith, by the way, is not just mental assent. Biblical faith means to trust and obey. Psalm seven fourteen. Yeah, so trust and obey is what biblical faith is all about. And Abraham did that. Before Abraham ever received the command to circumcise Isaac and his family in uh, Genesis 17, he trusted God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham's an example of faith. And then we get to, um, we get to chapter 5. So I'm going to look at chapter 5 briefly and then we want to spend the bulk of our time in chapter 6. But let's read Romans 5. I'm going to read 1 through 11. All right, so remember, Paul has said, you saved by grace through faith. Romans 4, Abraham's an example. Romans 5, just so you know, Paul is saying in Romans 5, hey, guys, Jews, if you're worried about losing anything because you now have this grace and faith system, you haven't lost anything. And in Romans 5, he's going to show how the grace and faith system benefits and blesses everybody, okay? So if the Jews are worried, oh, man, we, you're right. Abraham was saved by grace through faith and not law. But what about all the promises and covenants? Remember, Christianity never makes your life worse. It always makes it better. Paul's going to show in Romans 5. We don't have it. We never had it any better. Romans 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance endurance produces character character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us for while we were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly for one will scarcely die for a righteous person though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners Christ died for us since therefore we have now been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Okay, so in Romans 5, 1 through 11, Paul is going to continue to talk about how 
we are justified by faith and why that's a good thing. First thing he starts off with, Romans 5 and verse 1, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have what? Peace, peace with God. Question, who has peace with God? Who has peace with God? Christians. Christians, people who have been justified by faith. Faith. Okay, so we have peace with God. What does that mean? It means if you're in Christ, and Paul's going to say more about this later, but if you're in Christ, God doesn't frown on us. God's not upset with us. We have peace with God. There's reconciliation. Paul says in Colossians 1.20 about Jesus, he made peace through the blood of his cross. Or Ephesians 2.14, he says he took the middle wall of partition down which separated Jews and Gentiles, and he made peace between the two parties. What did the angel say in Luke 2.14 when Jesus came into the earth? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he's well pleased. Jesus said, my peace I leave with you, John 16, 27. Now that we're justified by faith, that wrath of Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, and Romans chapter 3, that wrath's done away with it. So the Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God is true, but it's not the situation for people who are now in Christ because we have peace with God. We're on good terms with God if we're Christians. Listen, we're not trying to be. We are. We have peace with God. Paul uses the aorist tense. It's a done deal. If we're in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the way it is because we're justified by faith, just like Abraham. And so that's what Paul starts with. There's peace and harmony in our relationship with God. Paul is trying to show him you haven't lost anything, but instead you enjoy, you now enjoy a great relationship with Jesus. Through faith, we have access to God's grace. So one way to look at it is this way. Grace is the door. Faith is the key that opens the door of grace and lets us into the household where all of God's blessings reside. You see it, Paul says, therefore we're justified by faith and faith gives us access in verse two into the grace of God in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Grace is the door. That's how you get in God's house. Question, how do you unlock the door? That's faith. Faith is the key that unlocks the door of grace that lets you into the house of God where all of God's blessings are. And that's what Paul's saying in Romans chapter five. You haven't lost anything in Christ, you've gained. Look at verse two. By, we have access by faith into the grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And we have it so good in Christ now, you can just look down through verse five. Paul says there's nothing that can ruin it for us. We can rejoice in the face of tribulation or hardship or whatever we face because we're not going to lose God's love. Our hope will never be put to shame. And a part of that is he's given us what in verse five? It's shed abroad in our heart or he shed abroad in our hearts. What does he say? The what? The love of God is shed abroad by what? Who has he given us to dwell in us? Verse 5. It's Holy Spirit. Paul will say more about the Holy Spirit in chapter 8, but he introduces his presence into our lives in chapter 5. A part of what we got when we use the keys of faith and enter the door of grace and have come into all of these blessings is God's love shed abroad in our hearts. That means God's love has just been poured out on us. And proof of that is God has given us the presence of the Spirit. We'll save the rest of what we're going to say about the Spirit's presence for chapter 8. But Paul's just trying to get the Jewish people to see if they're worried about losing out now that they're Christians and the faith system has come about. He's saying you haven't lost anything. Life's gotten better for you now that you're in Jesus Christ. You're a winner and not a loser. All right, verses 6 through 8. Our pretty famous territory. Remember when we started this class, I taught we were in the auditorium in the first class. And I talked about verses that are well known in Romans. We know Romans 3.23, all have 
sin and falling short. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is. And part of our like greatest hits of Romans, we know these passages well, but I'm hoping as we walk through the book, we learn to see these passages situated in their proper context. For example, Romans 5, 6 through 8 is well known, right? It talks about the fact that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Perhaps for a good man, someone even dare to die. God committed his love toward us. And while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We quote Romans 5, 6 through 8, and we say what? We know God loves us because what? Jesus did what? Die for us. But that's not Paul's point. That's not his point. Paul is saying, listen. You've entered the door of faith by grace. You're saved. You entered the door of grace by faith. God shed his love on you, right? You enter this, you've got peace with God no matter what happens. God's for you. His love's present. And then notice how he starts reasoning starting in verse 6. And just follow his argument. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Scarcely for a righteous person would one die. Perhaps for a good man, some would dare to die. But God commends his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We stop right there. And what Paul's doing is Paul's saying, listen, God loved you when you were terrible. But imagine how much he loves you now. Notice the much more statements in verse 9, 10, and 11, because this is really Paul's point and punchline. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, you can draw an arrow back to verse 1, that justification by faith is by his blood. Since we've been made right with God by his blood, what's the next part say? What do you got? What's the next part? Much more we will be. Let's read the Bible, everybody, nice and loud. <laughs> Since we've been justified by his blood, what's next? Much more what? We'll be saved by wrath through him. Your soul, my soul, we need this from Paul. Paul's not just saying, okay, God died for you when we were terrible, Christ died for us. He's saying, yeah, he did that when you were an enemy. But now in Christ, it's not just that you're saved. If God loved us when we were enemies, he says, much more you'll be saved from wrath through him. Look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That's verses 6 through 8. If while we were enemies, we were made friends again, what do you have at the end of verse 10? What's going to happen now? Much more now we'll be reconciled. We'll be saved by his life. How does verse 11 start? Not only, Paul said there, but wait, there's more. Not only that, not only that, Paul keeps saying much more. Much more. What does this mean? It means now that you and I are in Christ, it's not only the case that God's not mad at us. We look at the cross and we say, well, we know God loved us because of the cross. And Paul says, amen. But Paul says, listen, listen, the cross is not the end of this love. It's merely the beginning. Much more will be saved. If God died for you when you were an enemy, how much do you think God loves you right now? Surely it hasn't decreased, Paul says it hasn't. In fact, much more will be saved through wrath. He'll say it this way in Romans 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Paul is saying, if you're a Christian, the wrath of God has done an about face from you. God is not looking for mistakes in your life to send you to hell. The only person that can mess up our eternal redemption is us. And we've got to work harder than we ever imagined to actually do it. Because the love of God that saved us when we were enemies, Paul says there's more than that that's kicked in now that we're in Christ. And God's at peace with us. And we need to rejoice in that fact. And that's what Paul is driving at. Six through eight is not the punchline. Paul's saying, hey, that was true about you when you were enemies. We're not talking about that. We're talking about now that you're justified. How much does God love you now? Much more than that. All right, let's go to Romans 5, 12 through 21. Any questions on Romans 5, 1 through 11? All right, this, these next verses here, these next 
set of verses, 10 verses, are sometimes the subject of a lot of debate. There can be some confusing things in them, but let's read them and then we'll discuss them. Who wants to read Romans 5, 12 through 21? I can call on somebody or we can have a volunteer. How do y'all want to do it? Go ahead. Okay. Therefore, since Okay, so Romans 5, 12, and I've got friends in different places, and their whole theology is built around Romans 5, 12 through 21. There's been whole debates about what Paul's saying in Romans 5, 12 through 21. I'm going to explain to you what I think Paul's clearly saying, but before we do that, here's what we need to appreciate. How does Paul, before you get to Romans 5, Romans 5 can't upend everything Paul said up to this point. Question, how are people made right with God today based on what Paul has said? People are justified by what? Faith, faith in right. Christ Jesus. Now, question, what does the Bible mean when it talks about faith? Faith in the Bible is not just belief. It is what? Obedience. Obedience, trust, steadfast obedience to God based on what he said. Whatever Paul says in Romans 5, he doesn't change subjects and it doesn't upend that. So what is Paul saying? Paul's talking about the grace of God in a section where he compares Adam with Jesus. Remember what Paul's doing in Romans 5. You haven't lost anything through the grace and faith system. He showed that in Romans 5, 1 through 11. You have much more than that, much more, moreover, God's blessed you. But now he's going to set up Adam and Jesus as these two types of individuals. And what he's going to say is, through Adam, 
The worst things in the world have come, but Christ has outdone and overdone all of those things. But notice what he's, how he says it. Look at Romans 5 and start in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because what? All of sin. So Paul says here that just like through one man sin came into the world and death through sin, sin's been ruined in the world through since Adam, that one man's disobedience was undone by one man's obedience. Now look at verse 12 closely. Don't hear Paul saying what Paul didn't say. Paul says in verse 12, who brought sin into the world? Everybody, who brought sin into the world? Adam. Listen, Paul says, Adam brought sin into the world, but you and I brought sin into our world through our own choices. It's right here in verse 12. For by one man's sin came into the world and death by sin. Now, that's not the end of the verse. Death passed to all men because what? We got it from Adam. Is that what your Bible says? That's not what Paul said. Paul says, Adam introduced sin into the world. But we introduced it more closely into our world because we chose to. See, people come to Romans 5 and they got Paul saying, well, Adam's the reason why everybody's guilty and ridden with sin. But Paul actually says Adam introduced it. Adam brought it here and the world's a different world after Genesis 3. Let's admit that. But Paul does not say we catch sin from Adam like a cold. He doesn't say it just spreads around like a virus. And once you're born, you're blackened and stained with the sin of Adam. He's saying, no. We followed just like Adam in our own sins and our own transgressions. It was our own decisions, but Adam's the one that introduced it, and Jesus is the one who undoes it. Verses 15 through 17, the grace of God is different from the guilt of Adam. The grace of God is a free gift different from the life of sin we knew when we followed in Adam's footsteps. So that's verses 15 through 17. Look at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass, that's Jesus' sacrifice, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more has the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Look at verse 17. For if because of one man's trespasses, death reigned through that one man, that's Adam, through Adam's sin, and we all, Followed in Adam's footsteps. Don't ever read Genesis chapter 3 and say to yourself, how could Adam and Eve do that? I mean, if they wouldn't have done that, we'd be what? Swinging from palm trees and drinking from teeth to freezers. We'd be living a great life. They ruined the world. Listen, what the Bible says is there is a sense. We don't perceive Adam's guilt, but there's a sense in which Adam was performing on behalf of all humankind. And the reality is, and our lives testify to this fact, if we're accountable, he did exactly what you would have done. And proof of that is we've already done it. We follow right in Adam's footsteps. Our own choices testify to the fact that we're selfish, disobedient, flagrant, violators of God's word, and we would have done the very same thing that Adam would have done. You put anybody in the world in the garden outside of Jesus Christ, and we would have followed in the same footsteps. And our own record testifies that we have. And Paul's saying that one man's trespass brought death and disobedience to everybody, and death reigned. But Jesus comes along, and what does he do? His one act of obedience changed everything for everybody is St. Paul saying in Romans 5 you and I are not better sinners than he is a savior if you think Adam ruined the world when he sinned he said well think about what Jesus did that one act of disobedience changed things but Jesus's one act of obedience upended and superseded that in a way that can't be matched in verse 17 and then the last thing he says in 18 through 21 the one sin brought condemnation but the one sacrifice brought salvation so Adam's one trespass, that's in verse 18, led to the condemnation of all men. So one act of righteousness leads to what? 
verse 18. Justification and life for all men. If somebody's going to say, based on what Paul's saying here, Adam sinned and everybody's guilty without having a choice, you would also have to say, you would have to affirm that everybody's saved based on what Jesus has done no matter what. If the guilt of Adam is imputed to people without them having a choice, then Paul would have to also be saying here that everybody's going to be saved by the sacrifice of Jesus without it. Paul's not saying that. Adam introduced sin into the world, and everybody has chosen to follow in his steps. And Jesus has introduced salvation into the world, and we get a choice. Look at verse 20. What does verse 20 mean? Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. What is Paul saying about the relationship between sin and law and grace? The law came in to increase the trespass. That means the law just continues to remind you that you're a sinner. Remember what we talked about? The speedometer on the road, you ride past it, speed limit 55, you're going 85. The law doesn't change your behavior. Law does not make people behave better. It just lets you know when you have it. The law came in to increase trespass. When Moses gave the tablets, he says, well, you were already sinners, but now it's written down, so you know you're a violator. The law came in to increase trespass, but where sin abounded, what happened next? What does verse 20 say? What's the last part of that? Grace abounded all the more. What does that mean? Grace abounded all the more. He covers it. He what? He covers it. He covers it? Okay. What else? God's grace outweighs our level of sin, for sure. Good point, Heather. What else? <coughs> Where sin abounded, grace did all the more abound. What is Paul saying? When the law came in, it heightened our awareness of our sin. But what does he mean, grace all the more abounded? And we haven't heard wrong answers. These have all been right, but there may be more to say. What else is Paul saying? What do you think about when you read that? Where sin increased, grace all the more abounded. What does that mean? definitely make a point like it's not even close grace is so much greater than the sin that it's not it's not like we're barely covering it he's got it more than covering. yeah i think that's right he's saying he far out does it roger did you raise your hand same thing and he's saying grace is all sufficient grace is yeah grace doesn't just pay back what adam did and even up the stakes grace far supersedes it and that's what paul wants us to see Paul's main point here is that nobody has ever had it any better than those of us under the faith and grace system. If we wake up every day or even throughout our lives have time periods when we're unsure about our standing with God or what God's going to do with us, just always remember when we feel those things and we might and we will, it's not because God wants us to, it's because we do. Paul's told us three times in 9, 10, and 11, much more he saved you, much more, more than that, where sin increased, grace did all the more increase. And it's to our own shame if we know about Adam's sin and how that ruined the world more than we emphasize what Paul's really emphasizing here, and that is Jesus has totally reversed that in his death and sacrifice. It's not even close. The world is in the shape that it's in because human beings have chosen to sin. But Paul says here, Jesus has already begun to fix that in his death and resurrection. And guess what? We're Christians. We're part of that. All right. Romans chapter 6. All right. Romans 6. Paul's laid out a strong biblical case for justification by faith. He's done that. Closing chapter, closing section of chapter five is somewhat challenging. Paul take the major takeaway is in Christ we're justified. Nobody has it any better. And then the punchline, Romans 5, 20 through 21, we just talked about that, where sin increased, God's grace increased and surpassed it. So as far as Paul's concerned, death is unemployed in the life of a Christian and sin. 
you can forget about those two things and he'll lay that out for us as we go forward. If you were reading this for the first time, or we can even talk practically about now, what should be our response to what Paul has just said in Romans 4 and 5? Abraham's justified by faith. That's always been God's plan. Chapter 5, got faith. That's the key. Grace is the door. You're in. You're in this house with all of God's blessings. He shed abroad his love in your heart through the Holy Spirit. Adam brought sin into the world. Jesus brought justification. What should be our response to what Paul has just said? What would be the natural response to all of this good news Paul has just dropped on us? How should we be feeling? Or what should we be thinking? As long as we're walking in the light, we're going to turn from our sins. But we're going to continue to sin. And there's never anything that we can do where the grace is not going to cover what we're doing. So the grace has got me. I can trust that God's grace is going to cover me. What else? We should have the boldness and the confidence to come before God. We should have boldness and confidence to come before God. Anything else? Gratitude, yes. Gratitude, Stacy, for what God's done. Paul's going to break out into this gratitude at the end of Romans 7. He'll say, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. He's going to be grateful for what Jesus has done based on what we've seen. What else? Well, I mean, what do you think about? Don't think theologically. Don't think for a Bible class answer. You just read the verses. What do you think about when you read much more, I'll be saved from wrath through him. What do you think about when you read, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ? What's our response to those verses? Surely the wrong response is a shoulder shrug. Well, I guess that's all right. What's the right response? Because that's some of your response right now. I'm just going to rebuke you from here. But yeah, that's the wrong. David, what do you, what do you have? Because of that relief, uh, we should be just so appreciative we're alive, we're, we're excited. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. Paul's just said all of this about grace. Since the grace of God is good news, why do you think some people are afraid of it? Do you ever hear people say things like this? Maybe they say it about another group, another church or somebody, they'll say something like, you know, they just preach grace all the time over there. What does that mean? What do we mean when we say that about somebody? Typically, show of hands, have you ever heard that? Oh, they preach is grace. Maybe you said that. What do we mean when we say that? Or what about this? Um, can the grace of God be overdone? What do we mean when we say that? I mean, some people are afraid of grace. You start talking about grace and they get a little squirmy about it. They're a little concerned about grace. Why is that the case? Because we just read all this good news and our response should be excitement, gratitude, thankfulness. I want to serve him. What do we mean when we say sometimes, well, they just preach grace all the time. What does that mean, Roger? It means obedience has no place. Okay. So some people you think might emphasize grace to the point where obedience has no place, maybe. What else? Grace without faith. Grace without faith? It implies no doctrine or accountability as if it's either or. Okay, so people might, yeah, that statement applies, implies that, hey, it's either grace or obedience. Here's what I want us to appreciate. Nobody has ever overdone it with grace. Now, they might manipulate grace and make it out to be something that is not. But when we say all they preach is grace, that's what the New Testament is. That's the last verse in the New Testament. Revelation 22, 21. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. You say, well, they never preach obedience. Well, they're not preaching grace. Because grace always says people be grateful for what Jesus has done and obey. But if we have this idea that, well, there's grace. That's the soft preaching. That's the wimpy preaching. But we've got the faith and the obedience preaching. We've got the wrong biblical idea. You and I can't get enough grace. There's no such thing. Nobody's ever overdone it with the grace of God. Now, they might misconstrue it. 
And they might abuse it and twist it, as Jude says in Jude 4. They turn the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ into licentiousness. But the grace of God can't be exhausted. It's the very thing on which we plan to ride into his presence. Nobody overdoes the grace of God. We should never be thinking, here goes another grace sermon. No, we should be really asking for more. We don't overdo it. Nobody comes to God's table. He serves up grace, and we say, well, I don't want any seconds. Everybody, I know some people, Thanksgiving comes around, they're ready to throw the ham out by Friday, and then other people are having like ham sandwiches, ham soup all the way through. Listen, you can't overdo the grace of God. You can't. Our response to it should be good news, but the reality is we sometimes are afraid of it because sometimes our biblical approach is we're so worried about what people have misdone with the Bible that we don't do the right things with the Bible. Beware of reading scripture through the lens of always trying to fix the other guy. I want everything that God has for me. I don't care what other people do to abuse it. We can talk about it. We need to correct that. We need to preach against that. But I want everything God has for me. And just because people misconstrue it and misapply it doesn't mean we should hold on to it for dear life. And grace is one of those things. And in Romans 6, Paul's going to talk about how our lives are changed and transformed through grace. One last thing before we go to Romans 6. Why did Jews want Gentiles to be circumcised and keep the law? Why did they emphasize this? Because Paul in Romans 6 is going to say, hey, here's how you should respond to grace, and here's how it should affect your lives. But why did the Jews want the Gentiles to be circumcised? This is important for what we're going to read about baptism and everything in Romans 6. Roger? They, they were hanging too much on the law. Just... Yeah, they had a misunderstanding of how you become God's people. But here's the other thing don't miss about the Jews in the New Testament. They want Gentiles to be circumcised and keep the law because they're saying, okay, if we're saved by grace through faith and you remove the law of Moses, I mean, what's going to restrain people's behavior? How are people going to behave? If you're saying people are saved by grace and there's no law, people will do whatever they want. And Paul's going to say that's not true. They're, we're not saved by law. We don't have to keep the law. But that also doesn't mean that anything goes. There's something better than law that God has put in place to restrain human behavior. There's something better. It's called the new life with Jesus Christ. It does what the law could never do. There is no law that can help you and me to behave better. All the law does, any law, is point out when you disobeyed it. The only thing that can ultimately refrain people from doing wrong and change their behavior, spiritually speaking, according to Paul, is the new life in Jesus Christ. The law doesn't do that. The law just points out that you're a lawbreaker. And Paul says Jesus has something set up better than the law to help us live the way we should. Let's start in Romans 6, 1 and 2. Paul in Romans 6, he begins by talking about this. He follows up with what he said in Romans 5, 20 and 21. You remember where sin abounded, grace did much more about Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What is his response? No. The old King James has God what? Forbid. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So Paul starts out by saying, I anticipate somebody's going to have this question. What's the question? Shall we continue? If grace abounds where sin abounds, maybe we should just keep sinning so we should get more grace. What does Paul say? By no means, God forbid. Do some people still think like this today? Hey, God's grace is here, so where grace abounds, sin much more abounds. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Do people think like that? Yeah, why do people think that way? Why do some people think, hey, if God's grace is there, I might as well sin? Haven't sinned in a while, probably should cash in these forgiveness coupons. I mean, what's the point of God being willing to forgive if we don't give him something to forgive every now and again, right? I mean, might as well have not sinned in a few weeks. Haven't said that. Hey, might as well bring it in. After all, God forgives. Or what about this? Well, I know God will forgive me, and I really want to do this. And so 
I'm going to do this and all I'm, all I got to do is ask for forgiveness later. See, if we think like that, we're the people asking this question in Romans 6 and verse 1. Well, I know God will forgive me. He has to. That's who he is. I'm going to do this and God's going to, Paul says, don't even think it. Paul says, don't ever think that. In fact, what's wrong with this kind of thinking that says, well, God forgives so I can sin and just get more forgiveness. What's wrong with that kind of thinking? Heart's not right. Your heart's not You're right not for sure. You're not changed. And what? It'll pull you in. You what, Ronnie? It'll pull you in. It'll pull you in, and you have forgotten what grace is all about. Somebody has said this is the acronym for grace: God's righteousness at Christ's expense. There's nothing more expensive in the Bible than the grace of God. God bankrupted heaven to save us. That's what grace is. It's no cheap grace in the Bible. Grace has come about because Jesus died. Listen, the gospel says this about you and me. You and I were so bad that God had to die to save us. That's how bad it was. It wasn't just like, well, we violated a few rules and all. We were so bad that God himself had to die to save us. But the gospel also says you and I are so loved, he didn't think twice about doing it. The gospel says you and I were so bad, God had to die to save us. But the gospel also reminds us we're so loved, he didn't think twice about doing it. But God's righteousness at Christ's expense is what grace is all about. And when we stomp on it and trample on it and say, well, it's there for me to get forgiven, we misunderstand it. Um, well, and one thing we forget, too, one of the reasons God doesn't want us to sin is it hurts us. Yeah. There's consequence. It changes you. If you just wallow in it, to use my grandma's word, <laughs> it, it's going to hurt you. And he knows that. And he's it's protecting you in one sense, not just separating you from him, but it, it hurts you. That's right. Hey, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm just going to add to this. Uh, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4. Uh, it mentions here that you have become estranged from Christ. You will uh, attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. Yeah, you can't fall away from grace, can't you? You can so live as to lose it. Uh, we've got like 13 minutes left. Let me, let me go quick. But go to a few passages. I want to just show you. I need to do this. Go to Titus 2. I need to show you how the New Testament talks about grace. And how we should respond to it. Go to Titus 2 and um, 11 through 14. Paul talks about grace in this passage. And this is why I said nobody ever preaches too much grace. We might misuse it and misapply it. But biblical grace is not salt. Titus 2 and verse 11, Paul says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see that? What does grace do in verse 12? Teach us to do what? Live soberly, righteously, and godly. Well, first, before that, before it teaches anything. Teaching us to deny what? When I was in school, when we would come into a class in middle school or high school, if we had a sub, you know, what do young kids think when we got a substitute teacher? <laughs> free ball, hey, free time, no problem, hey, do whatever you want. It's a free show. Paul's saying, hey, Grace is a teacher, but she's no sub. She doesn't stand up at the front of the class and say you can do whatever you want. Grace is serious business. Grace is stern. Pencils out, paper ready, homework done. See, the grace of God teaches us. Deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Live soberly, right? If you think grace is a bird course, you got the wrong professor at the front of life's classroom. Paul says, in fact, the grace of God says, I want to live better, not to earn his love, but my sober living is how I say thank you for what God has done. Verse 14 says he redeemed us so that he could present us to himself a peculiar people or people for his own special purpose, zealous for good works. What does grace teach? Live right. 
Shall we continue in saying that grace may abound? Paul uses this phrase, make it anointo, which means never even think about it. Don't ever let that come up at all. That's why the old King James says, God forbid. God's not in the text, but they're trying to capture the strongest way they can get across what Paul's saying is, no way, don't ever. Look at 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 1. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 1. What does Paul say about the grace of God there? Somebody read it nice and loud. I just want to emphasize these things Paul's saying about grace. We won't have time to get through all of 6, but that's okay. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. You see, you can receive it in vain, the grace of God. You can receive it in vain if it doesn't change you. Paul says that. In Galatians 2.21, we don't have time to go there, but it's after the famous, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In Galatians 2.21, Paul's going to say, I don't frustrate or set aside the grace of God. If righteousness comes by the law, Christ died for no purpose. Everything the New Testament says about grace is that it's free from God toward us, but it costs God everything. Shall we continue in saying that grace may abound? What's the response? No. No way. Why? Romans 6 and verse 2. Paul says, he gives the reason in verse 2. God forbid, how shall we that are what? What does he say in verse 2? How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So if you die to a lifestyle of sin, Paul said, how can you keep living in it? Our lives are supposed to be changed because of this. Notice what Paul says in verse 2. Sin didn't die. Who died? Everybody. Who died? No, wrong answer. How shall what? Verse 2. Read the Bible. Romans 6 and verse 2. Just read the Bible. What does Paul say? Sin didn't die. Who died? Joyce? We died. You died. Now, we'll talk about when in a minute, but see, we're different because we died. Anybody like orange juice? Who drinks orange juice? Show up and keep them up nice and high. Who likes orange juice after they brush their teeth? What's different? It's the same orange juice. You know what's different. Your palate's different. Paul's saying, look, sin didn't die. You died. You changed. That's what's different. And now your palate's different. You will sin. You will have problems. But it doesn't taste the same in your mouth. You don't just rejoice in it and revel in it because you've been changed. And so have I. How shall we that are dead to sin keep living in it? We've been transformed. 1 John 3 and verse 6, 1 John 3 and verse 9 says... Those that are in Christ, they don't continue in sin. We have isolated incidents of sin, but a lifestyle of sin, God forbid, how could we? We've been changed. We've died to sin, and we can't keep living in it. And so Paul says we have a new motivation for living righteously. Listen to the Jewish people. Paul's saying, you're worried that people are going to do whatever they want because there's no law. Paul says, wait a minute. God's got something better than a law to restrain human behavior. It's a new life. That's what helps people to live better. It's not that they've got to keep the law of Moses, and without that, people are going to do whatever they want. Paul says, God just says, you're a new person, and that's enough to change the way that you live. All right, Romans 6, 3 through 11. The natural question is this. When did we die to sin? Paul says that in Romans 6 and verse 2, but somebody tell me, when did that happen? Everybody, when did that happen? <coughs> Baptism. Yeah, Romans 6 and verse 3. Don't you know that so many of us, as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death? And therefore, we're buried with him by baptism and death, that just like Christ was buried, we've been raised to walk in this newness of life. And so Paul says we died to our sin at baptism. Just think when we talk to people about baptism, just think about this. If baptism is not important, if baptism is optional or non-essential, Paul's whole argument breaks down about us being dead to sin. Paul doesn't even argue that people have to be baptized. Look at your Bible. Look at Romans 6 and verse 3. He just assumes that everybody knows this happened. Because in the first century, there was no such thing as a non-baptized Christian. And guess what? There's no such thing today. 
Paul can just say this. Hey, you remember when we all got baptized? He doesn't say, well, you hadn't had baptism Sunday yet, so you don't understand this. Everybody knows. Don't you know that so many of us, as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death, therefore we're buried with him by that baptism into death? Just, just like Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. If baptism is optional, none of what Paul's about to say makes sense. Everything in Romans 6, all the way through to verse 23, hinges on what Paul's about to say about what changed with us in baptism. And that bell lets me know we won't get to talk about it all. But it's in your Bible. All right. Paul says, look at 6, 3, and 4. Look at verse 4. Just like Christ was buried, we've been buried with him in baptism. You see that in verse 4? That like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What is the gospel? And DBR just stands for death, burial. I bet you could figure out the R. What? Bang. There we go. Hiram's key words. Glossary. DBR. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We sometimes say about lost people, if you want to be saved, you have to obey the what? Everybody, obey the gospel. What's the gospel? The But just think about it. How do you obey facts? The death, burial, and resurrection is the gospel, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, right? You've got to obey that. How do you obey it? You've got to undergo your own. And that's what Paul's saying in Romans 6, 3 through 4. You can't be saved unless you also die, get buried, and are raised. You've got to do the same thing Jesus did. That's what Paul's arguing for in Romans 6, 3 and 4. Now, a few quick things before we move on about what Paul says in that, about baptism, and then we'll try to get down to verse 11. Number one, baptism is a burial. According to Paul, we're buried with him in baptism. That's Romans 6 and verse 4. If baptism is a burial, and a burial is not full immersion, we're using far too much dirt at the cemetery. <laughs> baptism is a burial, and that's what Paul says. That's number one. Number two, in a book that stresses responding to God by faith, it's important to see, Paul says, we crossed the line when we got baptized. See, people that don't believe you have to be baptized, I've got a friend, he's a Christian now, but I remember when he wasn't, and we were studying about when he became a Christian, and he said he was saved, and I said, well, tell me, when did it happen for you? And he said, well, I don't remember. We probably shouldn't focus on the exact time in which we're saved. It just happened. See, if you don't know that baptism is for the forgiveness of sins, you'll always struggle. See, when is that dividing line? But in the New Testament, nobody struggles. Paul says, this is the line. This is when you crossed over. You believed and repented and all that's great, but the dividing line when people cross over is when they get baptized. Paul says it's then we're buried and we rise to walk in newness of life. What is Paul comparing our baptism to? Jesus' death, burial, and what? But let's not miss Paul's point. It's not about denominational people or what other people think about baptism. In fact, in fact, none of the passages in the New Testament are. Every single time. Paul or anybody else, listen to me, anybody in the New Testament brings up baptism, it's never about convincing a non-Christian to do it. It's always reminding people that have, remember what you did when you got baptized. Paul's just said we're saved by grace through faith, and they might think, well, we can do whatever we want. Paul says you can't, and the reason why we can't is because you remember what happened the day you got baptized? Baptism's a celebration, but it's a funeral. Somebody died that day, and it was you. Baptism isn't just about, these passages aren't just about proving to the other person that they need to be baptized. It's reminding us, you remember what happened when you did that, right? Your whole life was transformed, or at least it should have been. Paul's saying, you should be just as surprised to see the old man crop up in your life as you would be if you saw one of your dead loved ones walk through the door. It would freak you out. You'd be, you'd be terrified. But oftentimes, we see the old man that we say we killed in baptism up walking around, and it's as if we really didn't kill him in baptism. We just knocked him unconscious. He just took a nap. 
And now he's back up to play again. Paul says, he died in baptism. She died in baptism. And we're supposed to walk in newness of life. Do you know anybody who's ever been baptized who's not right now walking in newness of life? You know anybody who did that and now they're not living like they should? We should probably use Paul's line of argumentation here to try to win people back. Hey, you remember when you got baptized? Remain true to that. Hey, why don't you get baptized again? That's how Paul starts in verse 3. Don't you know that so many of us is going to, hey, why did you do that? Why did you get baptized? Why did you go through that whole process if you didn't? And don't you want to remain faithful? You died in baptism. Rise to walk in newness of life. The apostles, and this will be the last thing we say, the apostles in the New Testament are not too good to talk about hell as a motivating factor to get people to obey. They will talk about punishment, and if you don't obey, here's what's coming. But their favorite way to encourage people to remain faithful, their favorite form of motivation is, remember what you did? Remember why you did what you did? I'll tell you this, the bell's going to ring, but let me tell you, in Florida, there was this college kid. He came to our congregation. He walked in off the street. We were having a gospel meeting with Jody Apple. He knew nobody in the congregation. He saw our sign. He just came in. He said he wanted to study the Bible. We studied the Bible with him. He obeyed the gospel. He came for a little while, and then he drifted. I remember preaching a sermon about how we should respond to wayward people, and there was an older man in the church who said, I had a list on the PowerPoint, and here are the people, some of the people we need to be thinking about what happened to them. And this older man said, um, let's go see. I won't say his name, but let's go see him. I set up the meeting, we took this young man to five guys, and this older guy came with me, and he had his New Testament, and we were eating, he bought the guys lunch, and we sat down and he talked with them, and then he said, hey, do you remember when you got baptized in life? And he opened up his Bible, and he started reading these passages to him, and he said, hey, do you remember you made a commitment? I know life gets busy, I know things get difficult, but you remember the promises that are supposed to be yours? It's not just that, listen, it's not just that we owe you something to do this. But he told the young man, he said, you owe us something. In your absence, we missed something. You vowed to encourage me, and I haven't received it. You vowed to uplift me, and you haven't done it. I need you to hold fast and be faithful because you promised. You died in baptism. Paul says, you can't continue in sin because you've been baptized. It's changed the way you live. You put the old man to death, and you've been raised to walk in the place of life. As much as we emphasize baptism, I've been in airports, I've been renting cars, and people say, oh, you remember the church Christ? Y'all are the baptism folks. As much as we're known for baptism, we had better be just as known for emphasizing what baptism is really all about. It's for the remission of sins, yes, but it's also for the reformation of life. And if all we ever emphasize is that people are dipped and done, we haven't gone all the way with the New Testament. All right, thanks for a good Bible class.